2: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: On this episode, one of the most controversial UFO incidents ever reported in Canada, the Carp Guardian case.
1: Garrick said when his grandmother died, she left him an envelope saying not to be opened until after my death and he'd never opened it he hadn't really thought a lot about it until he heard that we were in the area he heard about what we were looking into and he opened it and he said i think you would be very interested to come and have a look at what i found
0: hey there i'm hard at work on another edition of inner sanctum my free monthly newsletter inner sanctum features my monthly brief a column of my thoughts and opinions on what's happening in the world It features a spotlight on a past guest, a look ahead to an upcoming episode of my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show. It features a look at this month in conspiracy and UFO history, and my Conspiracy Unlimited podcast, episode pick of the month, and so much more. To get your free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, delivered to your email inbox, just go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and click on Inner Sanctum, and register. It's fast, easy, and again, absolutely free.
2: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres, Pursuing the truth wherever it leads.
0: The Carp Guardian case of Eastern Ontario is undoubtedly the most controversial in Canadian UFO history. The story involves a UFO crash retrieval, aliens, Canadian and American investigators, the RCMP, TV show producers, and a handful of witnesses. UFO Town is a documentary film which revisits this case, and it debuts tonight, Friday, March 26th at 9 p.m. on CBC Television and on the CBC Gem app. It all started in the early 90s when a declassified document and a video emerged that appeared to show a spaceship crash landing in a field in the area. The case went viral in a pre-YouTube and TikTok era when the X-Files was making aliens a hot pop culture topic. The UFO case attracted tourism to West Carlton and also the attention of the hit 90s TV series Unsolved Mysteries, coming from the U.S. to Canada to cover the case in an episode. In UFO Town... The filmmakers go back to the scene of the crash to find out more about who started this alien frenzy and interview longtime local residents who claim they saw a lot of alien activity in the area throughout the early 90s. Nick Crow is the series producer. Hey, Nick. Welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks, Richard. Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. So the Carp Guardian case in your film, UFO Town, described as a hall of mirrors, which is an interesting analogy. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Why a hall of mirrors?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, it's a very interesting case. It uh, starts in 1989 with the first of a series of packages being mailed out from a a mysterious figure in the West Carlton region who only identifies as Guardian. Uh, and this package went out to <clears throat> researchers around the world, uh, and immediately it sparked a great deal of interest. Um, a, a third and fourth package followed in 1991, including a VHS tape that supposedly depicts a uh, a uh, UFO landing in a field in West Carlton. From there, you've got <clears throat> the interest of uh, U.S. network television, that are you know, high on the success of The X-Files, which was the biggest show uh, on the planet at the time. So all of a sudden in West Carlton, you've got Unsolved Mysteries coming up to shoot a piece uh, and two sort of lesser-known Fox series sightings and encounters. But from all of that, we still don't know who Guardian is. <clears throat> so it, the Hall of Mirrors aspect are these these declassified documents, supposedly declassified documents, apparently from the Department of National Defense, that describe this crash and retrieval of a UFO in the swamps outside of West Carlton. So it's, it's a hall of mirrors in that we don't know exactly who is behind it and for all the, the, um, the people that it attracted to the region as well.
0: The timeline for me has always been a little hazy because, as you say, the Guardian first sent out some letters, uh, typewritten letters, in 1989 to some UFO researchers uh, talking about an event that happened then. uh, And then we get uh, a videotape with his fingerprint on it in 1991 uh, describing this landing uh, on Corkery Road uh, so just kind of try and if you can kind of clarify the picture here for me what supposedly happened in 89 and and is that somehow linked to what happened in 1991
1: yeah so it, it, it is confusing and you know a lot of a lot of people that know even a little about this case assume it was just a single package but you're absolutely right there was a, a first package that went out in 89 um, that was the letter with the declassified documents and then in 91 there's a so two years later, which is a long time, three separate packages emerge. One is uh, a postcard of some description, and then we've got some still still photography that depicts, uh, you know, your classic alien gray in a field, and then finally this VHS tape. Um, and the VHS tape has, you know, spawned a lot of controversy in UFO circles because certainly the U S networks that arrived up here were, were determined to prove that this was the genuine article that, you know, here was Roswell in Canada, but for the more discerning eyes, you know, it was pointed out that this could possibly be a, a vehicle, either a truck or a helicopter in a, in a field. But what, what happens is in 89, one of the researchers who gets this first letter, a guy named Graham Lightfoot, uh, who was at MUFON, um, Starts to go and knock on doors and meets someone in the area who, independent of this letter, corroborates the date and time of this sighting and uh, you know crash depicted uh, in the first letter. So that really now we have a, a witness to the case who becomes one of the primary characters in the uh, certainly in the unsolved mysteries segment that followed in in '93.
0: So let's talk about this thirty-two minutes of footage. Um, just to kind of describe if for those people. Uh, there may be a few of them out there who haven't seen uh, the the uh, the color video. Just describe what's on it.
1: Yeah, it's it is. Uh, you know, it's obviously shot on a on a VHS of some a handy cam of some sort. So it has that classic kind of grainy eighties look to it. And you've got something at a distance as to be sort of indiscernible, but it's a a multitude of lights sort of blurring. uh, And it's kind of a static shot. Um, But then at the end of it, what has twigged a lot of interest is there's another object that kind of appears. And someone pointed out, it looks an awful lot like uh, the windshield wiper on a, on a truck that's been raised, you know, as, as people do when, when they know snow or ice is coming it's a very haunting piece of tape, uh, but not a whole lot happens over that 30 minutes, 32 minutes.
0: And there are supposedly, well, there are some still shots or freeze frames or still shots of, I guess, supposed aliens standing in in tall grass.
1: Yes. Yeah. There's, um, and, and these aliens or supposed aliens have that kind of classic look, the, the, uh, you know, white face with these large kind of bug eyes. And, you know, Ian Rogers, who's the central character in our film UFO Town, he and his friend at the time re- were very easily replicated this uh, supposed alien using, a, I think, a kitchen catcher and a Sharpie. <laughs> uh, other people have said, you know, it kind of looks like someone in a goalie mask. But, you know, I think I think part of what fascinated us was how quickly people latched on to this and how you know indicative it is of this desire to believe and this this desire for any case where there might be physical evidence because there just there aren't many of them out there
0: let's talk a little bit about the the um DND documents i guess that were i think there were 6 pages that were wrapped around this videotape yes
1: yeah so it's um, it's something. I mean, it's a UFO has crashed in a field outside West Corkery. You have U.S. and Canadian forces that are scrambled to retrieve the wreckage. You've got um, alien bodies being recovered and and spirited away to uh, underground research facilities, and then you've got a whole load of contextual information about what kind of led up to this moment that, you know, the, the aliens are in, are in cahoots with, these are not my words or the words in the letter with, with the communists in red China that they've tried an allegiance with, with the Germans previously, the German technology is sort of spun out of this uh, allegiance with, with the aliens. So there's, there's a certain amount of right-wing rhetoric that's kind of carried along by this narrative of this supposed crash, which, um, you know, it it certainly seems to be a theme in UFO lore, and certainly today when uh, some of the the characters in the field, you you see that still, I think. Uh,
0: So let's talk about another central uh, figure in this case and also in uh, UFO Town, the film, and that is Bob Exler. Tell me me about Bob. Yes. Uh,
1: So... Bob's a very interesting character, and unfortunately, Bob passed away this um, uh, earlier this year, uh, I believe it was in May. Um, so Bob was a, we don't know exactly what his credentials were, but Bob worked at NASA in some capacity. I think that much seems to be verifiable. But Bob had been connected to other cases in the U.S. that I'm sure you know about. Uh, the Gulf Breeze case down in Florida, which... I believe was debunked when they found the models that were used uh, in the supposed UFO video in someone's attic. But Bob um, had a definite interest in finding the real deal, and Bob caught wind of what was going on in um, in Carp. Uh, he was one of the recipients of the original package, and came up to the region um, with his son as well to investigate. And I think. Bob's Bob's feeling was that to sort of draw Guardian out of the woodwork, uh, the, the most effective means possible would be using the media. So Bob used connections that he had in uh, U.S. television to get Unsolved Mysteries interested, and from there Bob becomes not just an investigator um, but also kind of an, an on-screen character. Uh, and you know, it's 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 kind of an unfortunate story, but. Bob and his uh, counterparts at MUFON and uh, Q Forum in Canada didn't really see eye to on, eye on the case and the supposed evidence. You know, Bob, Bob and his son, they were Americans, and <clears throat> there's an anecdote about them looking in the field where this supposedly happened and, and finding a, a juniper bush. And it was, you know, winter had just finished in the Ottawa area, and we all know how cold that is. But to them, this wilted bush was, had apparently been irradiated. Um, so there was a conflict between Bob and the Canadians. And where it led was Bob uh, wrote a letter of resignation <clears throat> and quit the field. And that, that was pretty much the end of his involvement um, with, with the UFO uh, business. Uh, so it's a, it's a sad story.
0: And after the airing of unsolved uh, on, on, uh, mysteries with the great Robert Stack as host, I remember that show as a younger man. Uh, people seem to seem to people seem to come out of the woodwork in West Carlton. Uh, talk to me about some of the witnesses.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's been really interesting. Um, you know, there's a witness that's in our film, a woman named uh, Lee Cole, um, who was driving home. She was picking her son up from karate class and was on a rural road um in the region and saw these lights ahead, like as she described it, kind of stadium lights that lit up the interior of her car. Um was interesting about Lee was her um her story was lumped into the Guardian narrative, but she reached out to us this past summer uh in an attempt to clear it up as she pointed out, her sighting had happened outside of the time frame, So this was, this was a big theme with our film. We went off to look into the guardian case, uh, you know, knowing that a lot of people thought it was a hoax, but in fact, the more interesting story were all of the other sightings and experiences people had had in the region that weren't connected to guardian that were, you know, I sat and interviewed these people. They were, they were authentic stories. These were regular people and whatever it was that had happened to them, was authentic um, without knowing exactly what it was they'd experienced
0: but but Exler um, tried to sort of conflate all of these disparate uh, encounters and stories into roll it into the into the uh, the carp case, right? Yes, yeah, that's correct was that main, mainly what perhaps sealed his fate in terms of lack of credibility, the fact that he took these different cases and tried to roll them into the Carp Guardian case?
1: I think so. I think so. I think in, within the UFO phenomenon, I think a lot of us are have a healthy skepticism, but I think everyone arrives at it from one side or the other with a with a, uh, a willingness to believe or a desire to sort of, um, you know, poke holes in the sighting or to... to to discredit or discount. And I think Bob was a a believer and um, you know, it's like any other case that you're trying to build. I think maybe some of the foundation stones he was building on uh, weren't as solid as he thought. And, you know, I think when you, you know, working in television myself, I can uh, sympathize with him that perhaps the narrative ended up slightly out of his hands and in the hands of network executives who were trying to make an interesting show. So I never met Bob, unfortunately. Um, I never got a chance to talk to him. So, um, but that's cert- That's certainly, as you've said, that was the, the, the issue the Canadians had with him, that his, his methods were weren't sound.
0: More of my conversation with Nick Crow, the producer of UFO Town, when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Since the mighty Aphrodite and I have been taking ESS-60, the purest form of carbon-60, we're thrilled to tell you we're both sleeping well and pain-free. ESS-60 is raw carbon-60 that's been produced, certified, and guaranteed for safer human consumption. C-60 is a mega antioxidant and is known to have 172 times the antioxidant power of vitamin C, 172 times. ESS-60 is the carbon-60 formulation used in the 2012 original Paris study that showed ESS-60 doubled the lifespan of rats. That's right, doubled their lifespan. I'm so proud to be associated with my good friends at c60evo.com. Their scientists invented the only reactor machine of its kind to produce carbon-60 back in 1991. They've been a top producer and distributor of C60 worldwide ever since. And the demand has been astounding. ESS-60 from c60evo.com is available in four, eight, 16, and 32-ounce bottles. Choose from single bottles, monthly subscriptions, or cases of 12 bottles. ESS-60, the purest form of carbon-60 available Get yours at c60evo.com slash ref slash rs1. c60evo.com slash ref slash rs1. Use the promo code RS1SPEC, RS1SPEC, to get 5% off. ESS60 from c60evo.com. you're staring up
2: at the night sky ever wonder who's staring back no me either but i guess you better say it because of richard you know he's all wrapped up in this stuff (laughs) conspiracy unlimited with richard sarat
0: Nick Crow is the producer of UFO Town, which examines the Carp Guardian UFO case in eastern Ontario. And UFO Town debuts tonight, Friday, March 26th at 9 p.m. on CBC TV and on CBC Gem. Talk to me about Susan Gill, who is no longer with us. I-, I believe she passed away in 2018, but you interviewed her grandson.
1: Yeah, that was remarkable, actually. We, um... <clears throat> All of these, uh, a lot of these central characters, all live on the same rural road. I mean, that's that was what was remarkable. To you know, you read about something, but when you actually go there and drive around, it was amazing how close these witnesses and the you know the encounter, the the landing site, supposed landing site was. So we were pretty much finished shooting and got a call on our way out of town um, from this guy named Derek Gill, and he said, you know, I don't know if you know the name Susan Gill, but I am her grandson. Of course, we knew all about Susan Gill. Um, we hadn't spent a lot of time honing in on her because we knew she was deceased, and she was somewhat peripheral uh, to the main narrative. She was a, one of the witnesses you've described that came forward after Unsolved Mysteries aired. But, I mean, this is ripped straight from the pages of fiction. Derek said um, when his grandmother died, she left him an envelope Saying not to be opened until after my death. And he hadn't, he'd never opened it. He hadn't really thought a lot about it until he heard that we were in the area and he heard about what we were looking into. And he opened it and he said, I think you'd be very interested to come and have a look at what I found. And so, you know, Susan's envelope were diaries and writings and um, thoughts about the UFO phenomenon. And within it were descriptions of sightings that she had had. So we went, when we went to speak to Derek, he, he hadn't sort of internalized the Guardian dates the way we had. So he had no way of knowing that when he was reading the dates out from this diary, that they corresponded exactly with the sighting in the Guardian case. So um, it's a central part of our film uh, that seeing Derek realize that perhaps his grandmother had, had more involvement in this than he'd, he'd ever thought. And you know, it highlighted something else for us which was very interesting, which you know, as Derek says, it's it's one thing to hear about these things on television and, and dismiss them, but when you're you're hearing this or reading this from a loved one who you always respected and trusted and who is rational and intelligent, it's a whole other thing. It really makes you stop and consider the possibilities. Right. So we're very, very fortunate to meet Derek.
0: I want to go back to The Guardian for a moment and the that famous um, thumbprint on the videotape. Uh, and it's also interesting, you mentioned Bob Exler and his participation in Unsolved Mysteries in that episode, and he was practically, it sounds like, directing it, uh, sort of in, in inserting himself into the production, uh, and even insisted on being the one that reenacted The Guardian placing the thumbprint on the, uh, the videotape. But was that thumbprint ever investigated? Were there any leads from that?
1: I don't think it was. Um, you know, this is a rare case in that the RCMP did get involved and there was, uh, an investigation into the guardian case only because it dovetailed with complaints that residents had on the road about low front, low flying aircraft from both Ottawa and, um, at Fort Drum, which is, uh, a, a, you know, across the border in New York state. So the RCMP was compelled to go out and have a look and in doing so, I guess felt that they had to address the UFO question, but no, 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 one ever, no one ever, uh, checked the thumbprint. I mean, I, I would imagine that it would have to match someone who was in the, the criminal justice system who had been fingerprinted for it to be meaningful. But, uh, no, and it would, be, it would be great to do it.
0: And was that the last communication from the guardian?
1: Yes. Yeah, that was the end of it. Which is uh, which is interesting. You think someone who who sent one package out waited two years? Um, you know, I I can only think that once you've got uh, three American network TV shows, the RCMP involved. All manner of ufologists arriving in the region, it probably felt like whatever it was had gotten way out of hand.
0: So next to Shag Harbor, uh, the Carp Guardian case is perhaps one of the, the best-known UFO incidents, but how is it viewed now by, I guess, the ufology community groups like MUFON and so forth? Did they look at Carp Guardian as a hoax, as it may as an embarrassment? Something that maybe delegitimizes or discredits ufology, or are they still open-minded about it?
1: Uh, I I don't believe they're very open-minded about it. Um, and I've you know I've spent time with some of the the names in Canadian ufology, and I think you're, you've touched on a lot of a lot of the things that they say that it in in giving credence to some of the cases that are maybe a little flimsier that it allows skeptics to dismiss the entire phenomenon. Um, but you know, what, what was more interesting to me was what this case said about our, you know, our, our preoccupation with life beyond earth and, you know, our desire to believe and the different reasons people want to believe. But no, this is not, this is not shag harbor or falcon lake um or wilbert smith it it just doesn't have that same uh weight behind it in terms of um you know the, the truth
0: and and yet these other witnesses who had encounters and experiences which you found to be credible uh or at least their testimony seemed authentic and genuine uh, so what what do you do with that? You I mean you you go in investigating something that is likely a fraud, and then you come away with all of these stories about what sound like, quite potentially you know genuine UFO alien encounters.
1: Yeah, that I mean that it's one of the joys of documentary filmmaking is you you start out with a question and you hope you know the answer you're building towards, but very often more interesting lines of inquiry emerge as you go. And yeah, I think we, we set out to, my question was, if this was a hoax, why did someone go to so much trouble? Why did they care so much? This was not, this was not something someone, you know, lightly entered into on a Friday afternoon and it was done by Saturday morning. This took some work, but you're absolutely right. It's, it's once people, there were two articles written about the production in local newspapers in West Carlton. And after that, the emails started coming in and they've never really stopped. I get at least one a week from someone who says, I know this isn't the Guardian case, but I live in, you know, Prior or uh, Stittsville or Carp, and something really strange happened to me in 94 or 2003 or, or whatever. And, you know, it's a bit like your previous question. The unfortunate thing is because the Guardian case has this. You know, whiff of a hoax about it. These other stories, I think, had been discarded over the years. So it was really fascinating to talk to all of these people and, you know, just regular people, your neighbors, the people you work with, your friends that didn't really have any interest in proving one way or the other that UFOs were real. In fact, feared ridicule and didn't come forward for many years in some cases sharing these stories. It, it was it was remarkable
0: <clears throat> so the guardian uh did you after completing the project, did you come away with any thoughts on his real identity could it could Bob exler have been the guardian
1: <laughs> I don't know about that i i i don't i don't believe so I don't think that you know West Carlton was really on uh, bob's Uh, map before, before those first packages went out, there was one individual who, and I I can tell that you've done, you know, all about this case. There was one gentleman that had been identified as, you know, this is the guardian. Uh, He was a local guy that had a real preoccupation with UFOs. And he's actually kind of chased down by this PI in, um, I believe it's the sightings show you know, being questioned about it. So we set out to find him. And after, you know, a lot of sleuthing, got his phone number and we went and met with him and, you know, he was very compelling in his denial of having anything to do with it. And I, for a variety of smaller reasons, I, I, I believed him that he wasn't involved in it. Uh, lovely guy, just, very interested like a lot of us in UFOs but it wasn't him um, so I have I have my ideas um, but nothing uh, nothing definitive which maybe is part of the joy in this story that it, it remains it remains a mystery and it remains a mystery that maybe one day we will have the answer to
0: barely a day goes by now where we don't read something in the mainstream media about this subject, for example, just recently on Fox News, the former uh, Department of Defense intelligence director John Ratcliffe came out and announced that the Pentagon has reports of UFOs breaking the sound barrier without producing any sonic boom, basically telling us that the the Pentagon has many such reports about, I guess, what we now call UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena. Uh, including UFO sightings mm-hmm. that haven't that haven't been made public. Do you have a sense that this is this is ramping up? That this is going someplace? Is there going to be some sort of a denouement here, or a great disappointment?
1: I mean, we can hope. I think what has definitely changed, which is very encouraging, is just the the tone of the discourse around it. I think this used to be firmly the realm of you know the tinfoil hat brigade and. You know, I know over the years expressing an interest in this to friends. You know, you get eye rolls. So I think between you know some of the sources you're mentioning and Avi Loeb at um, at Harvard, I think now you're getting you know scientific minds, uh, you know, people with a lot of a lot of real credibility that are that are giving this topic the you know the proper consideration. So I think maybe we're closer, but I. I don't know if, if we're going to find the answer.
0: But in the meantime, is this an easier pitch to places like the CBC? This type, this type of subject matter?
1: I, I think so. I think so. You know, I, I produced a, another show called Spaceman. Um, and I think, you know, CBC's interest in it, which was terrific is, you know, there's a phenomenon, but it's also, it it's a, a lens into how fascinating people can be. And, you know, a window into the things that preoccupy us. And, you know, I'm, there are questions of why do, why do we care so much? Um, and, you know, I think it really is perhaps our our greatest mystery. Um, so it's been terrific to produce the two films for them and, and to have that leeway to explore those, some of those bigger, deeper themes about,
0: about belief. UFO Town. Uh, debuts Friday night on CBC at 9 p.m., and it also streams on CBC Gem, the app. CBC Gem, part of the CBC Docs POV series. Uh, Nick, great speaking with you. Thank you so much for this.
1: You too. Thank you very much,
0: Richard. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash with a few words about an upcoming episode. Did you know you can now stream episodes of this podcast on your mobile device? All you need is my new Conspiracy Unlimited app. It's absolutely free, and it's available for both iOS and Android devices. If you're a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member, pay attention. You can now stream premium content from your mobile device. My free Conspiracy Unlimited app for iOS and Android. Available from the App Store and Google Play. Get yours today and start streaming Conspiracy Unlimited on your mobile device. Historian comic book style illustrator Arlen Schumer examines the canon of James Bond films beginning with Dr. No.
2: You can't imagine David Niffin getting into jiu-jitsu fights like Connery did. So Niven embodied half of the Bond persona, but not the complete Bond persona. The more weird a choice was from Ian Fleming himself, I think, that he envisioned the American musician Hoagie Carmichael as Bond.
0: Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.